after filling the universal heavens with the celestial bodies on the fourth day of the creation week and then filling the hydrosphere the waters of the earth and the atmosphere with a wide variety of living creatures on day five there remained only one area of God's concern for him to yet fill with living inhabitants and that last area was the lithosphere the land surfaces of this place we call home so God's final work reserved for the sixth day was dedicated to the task of filling the earth with a great array of living beings who would make their abode on the land in this lesson number 10 in our Genesis study called the sixth day part one we will cover verses 24 and 25 of Genesis chapter 1 and we will look at God's creation of the land animals however the capstone of God's creation work also took place on day 6 following the creation of the animals and that final crowning work was God's creation of man man is the apex he is the pinnacle of God's work in fact the whole purpose for any and all of God's creative work was to provide a place suitable for man to live man is the summit of God's creation because man alone was made in the very image of God himself so in this lesson we will only cover a discussion of God's creation of the land animals and we will save his creation of man for the lessons to follow there are only three main divisions for our study of the first creation activity of day six in part one entitled God created land animals we will look at the three basic types of animals as categorized by God the Holy Spirit in verse 25 and then we'll take a look at some unique features about some of the animals just to demonstrate like we did with the stars and the water creatures and the birds how the creation speaks so convincingly of an intelligent and a divine creator so that will be part one of our outline then in part two God separated kinds of land animals we're going to get into a little bit of a discussion of how the geologic column and the fossil record do not contradict the biblical record of species reproducing only after their own kind as opposed to evolving over millions of years into new kinds which is what evolution teaches then lastly in part three God saw land animals were good we will mention how the animals fulfill God's purpose and function for them so with that brief introduction let's look at our text verses 24 and 25 as we look at part one God created land animals Genesis chapter 1 verses 24 and 25 the scripture says and God said let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind now notice as I'm reading this how many times we hear that little phrase after his kind let the earth bring forth a living creature after his kind cattle and creeping thing and beast of the earth after his kind and it was so and God made the beast of the earth after his kind and cattle after their kind and everything that creepeth upon the earth after his kind and God saw that it was good for the seventh time in the unique creation week God spoke and in instant response to his omnipotent words living land creatures of all types and sizes and varieties came into existence God spoke and as the scripture says it was so God spoke and it was so 
dictum factum. Scripture for the second time lets us know that the origin of living creatures is God. Animal life did not just happen by the quote-unquote magic formula of chance plus time. Some impersonal force or energy did not just somehow or another accidentally bring about all the necessary basic cells and the amino acids and the proteins and the necessary DNA molecules and all the other essential substances of life which are necessary to form animal life. There was no spontaneous generation. God made the land animals and he did so by the power of his spoken word. Now in verse 25, the scripture states, if you'll look at it, that God made the various land animals rather than God created them as we had read back in verse 21 with regard to his creation of the fish and fowl. The Hebrew word for made in verse 25 is not the word bara, B-A-R-A, which involves making something from nothing. Uh, the word, the actual word for created, something God alone can do. It's not that word now in verse 25. So we might ask, why would the Bible say that God created the fish and the fowl, but that he only made the land animals? Well, the reason for this is because the act of creation mentioned in verse 21 with reference to the fish and the fowl was a reference to the conscious, breathing, animated life of physical beings. Now, of course, angels have life, but they are spiritual beings. So, for the first time, God created life in physical beings on, um, on day five when he created the fish and the fowl. Now, since such life was then therefore created on the fifth day, there was no further purpose to recreate it on the sixth day for the land animals. Conscious physical life was in existence after the fifth day, and it was then just merely placed within new types of bodies, bodies which would function not in the sea and, you know, not flying in the air, but bodies which would function on the land. The land animals are said to have been, if you notice, uh, brought forth in verse 25. They were brought forth from the earth, meaning from the ground of the earth. The bodies of the land animals came from the same elements as make up the earth, as does man. Man also was taken from the dust of the earth. The land animals were originally created so that they would not die. We know that, but of course, after the fall, when death entered the world through man's sin, the deceased bodies of animals and also man would then simply return to the earth, to the dust of the earth. So the animals of the earth, including those of day five, the fish and the fowl, were created out of the earth. The ground of the earth was the substance and the materials, the material, I should say, the matter, the chemicals, the elements, the particles, whatever you want to call it, which God used to form the bodies of the living creatures of this world. And scripture reinforces this truth. We don't only just read it here, but over in chapter 2 of Genesis and verse 19, it says, And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air. In both verses 24 and 25, 
we find that Moses was divinely inspired to categorize the land animals into three broad divisions. Now notice in verse 24 that they're listed in the following order. First of all, cattle, then creeping things, and then beasts of the earth. But in verse 25, we, do, we find this, the same three divisions, but they're listed in a different sequence. First of all, in verse 25, we have beast of the earth, then cattle, and then creeping thing. Now, this simple bit of information that this rearrangement of the sequential order of the animals tells us, what, all the, what this tells us is simply that all of the land animals were made simultaneously. They were all made at the same time. He didn't make the cattle first, and then the creeping things, and then the beasts of the earth. And this is what the Holy Spirit is showing us by reversing the order or changing the order. So God spoke and instantly there were animals of every kind all over the world. In this, there is not even the faintest correlation between the Bible's account of creation and evolution's supposed order of creation. Evolution would lead us to believe that there was a very slow progress you know, from that first little sea cell to eventually, after millions of years, to a fish, and then fish slowly evolved to amphibians, and then amphibians to reptiles, reptiles to birds, and then on to mammals. That is in total contradiction with what we read here in the Genesis account of creation. In fact, we find that amphibians, reptiles, and mammals were all created at the same time on in the same uh 24-hour period, and that actually the fish and the birds were created before any of them. But they have birds way up on the evolutionary scale. So there is just, there's no way that you can compromise these two opposing views. And so this should show us that, once again, it is impossible for any kind of logical compromise theory between creationism and evolutionism. Those who would propose such things as theistic evolutionism or progressive creationism are not logically following through because the two do not agree. How can a person say that God somehow used the evolutionary processes to eventually produce the plants and animals of our world when there are so many serious contradictions between the order of creation as presented here in Genesis and the order of events that are presented in the evolutionary theory? Now, we went over a number of the differences back in lesson number five. For those of you who were not here, you could refer back to that lesson. For example, evolution states that whales, this is something we learned last week, that whales are at the far end of the evolutionary process uh, because whales are mammals. Whereas, what does the creation account tell us? It tells us that they were the very first living creatures uh, that God created. In Genesis 1.21, of all the living creatures, it wasn't the one-celled little amoeba uh, protozoan. It was a great whale. So anyway, there is, a, there is a big difference between creationism and evolutionism, the, um, the order of, of living things that both present. And a compromise is just ridiculous. It, can't, it isn't accepted by theologians, and it's not accepted by scientists. So it's a ridiculous position, really, to take. 
It is interesting uh, to look back over the various days of the creation week and take notice of God's repeated creationary work in groups of threes. And all of this gives testimony really to himself because he is the triune Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. If you remember back on day one, God created the triad of time, space, and matter. And then also on day one, he brought forth light, form, and motion, another triad, to earth. So we have two triads on day one. Then on day two, God made three areas with regard to the earth. He made the waters below the firmament, then the firmament itself, or the atmosphere, and the waters above the firmament, those waters which we suggested created a, a water vapor canopy around the earth. On day three, God completed making three fields of activity with regard to earth. The atmosphere, which actually he created on day two, but these are the three fields of activity regarding the earth, the atmosphere, the seas, and also the land. Then also on day three, he made three types of vegetation. The grasses or the low-lying green cover, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit. On day four, God filled the sky above the earth with three celestial bodies which were important in relation to man's interest. He created the sun, the moon, and all the stars. And then on day five, God created the great whales, or tanin, the word is, which refers to all the original great sea monsters. Um, then he created every living creature that moveth in the waters. That's all the rest of the uh, inhabitants of the seas. And thirdly, every winged fowl. Now we find that God also categorized the land animals into three basic types, cattle, creeping things, and beasts of the earth. Man, who God created on the latter half of day six, in the image of himself, is just like God, singular. Man is singular, just as God is God. But man is made up of three parts, just as God is one person, but three persons in one. And man is the same way, because man is made up of body, soul, and spirit. So all of these trinities of God's creation give testimony to himself as being the triune creator. The classifications which are given in all of these areas, by the way, including the land animals of day six, these are not an attempt on God's part to correlate his creation with the arbitrary system of man-made divisions, but rather God's divisions are a more natural type of system which is based on the relation of things and animals to man's particular interests. You know, he's not trying to, to go along with what man devises for various categories of fish or fowl or vegetation. He is doing it in a more natural way with man's particular interests in mind. For example, the term cattle refers very probably to the realm of domesticated animals animals such as cows and and pigs and sheep and horses that sort of animal whereas beasts of the earth would be a reference to large wild animals such as lions and elephants and tigers and 
and giraffes and rhinoceros, rhinoceri, <laughs> and land dinosaurs as well, because we have to remember in the beginning God had created the dinosaurs. While the word creeping things would be a reference to all of the smaller animals and reptiles, as well as all the crawling insects. It's very possible that God made the, the insects which fly on day five along with the, the birds that fly, and perhaps he created the crawling insects on day six, things like um, non-flying bugs, and uh, ants or, or beetles, things like that. Although we can't be dogmatic, maybe he made all, maybe all the creeping things were on day six. But the, this last word, creeping things, would also be a reference to many of the amphibians and the smaller mammals such as rats and moles and uh, bats. Bats are not a bird. Bats are a mammal. So very likely bats were created on day six as well. Now man has classified literally millions of different species of animals. And of course there were more at the time of creation since many species have become extinct over the years. But in addition to the multitudes of microscopic living organisms, there are some 800,000 different kinds of insects, 30,000 kinds of fish, 9,000 kinds of birds, 6,000 kinds of reptiles, 3,000 kinds of amphibians, and 5,000 kinds of mammals. If all of life, if you think about this, if all of life, as the evolutionists would say, struggled to emerge from some lonely, original little sea cell, then what would explain all the vast variety that we have of life forms in this world around us? And think, too, about all the species that have become extinct. If everything struggled from the one original cell and evolved from that one cell, you would think that many things would look pretty much the same, that they would all evolve sort of the same and that there would only be one or two species of each kind. But that's not what we find in creation. So speaking of the variety of forms that we do have in our world of living animals, let's take a little time here and discuss some of the amazing features of just a few of the land animals and the creeping type of insects which God created on the sixth day. We'll have a little fun so you can just sit back and relax. This is nothing you have to concentrate on learning. But I hope that as we discuss just some of these, you will see God's magnificent wisdom and his design and his intelligence and that he truly has to be the creator, that these creatures could not just have evolved. So we're going to begin with some small things and then move up to large. Big surprises can, and they often do, come in small packages and one such case is found in the surprising little bombardier beetle which is an insect or a creeping thing with an incredible built-in defense system whenever this bug is threatened by an enemy such as a frog he blasts into the enemy's face from two tailpipes in his body irritating and odious gases which are at a temperature of 212 degrees Fahrenheit. It has been learned that the beetle's body makes the explosive by mixing together two very dangerous chemicals and then adding yet another chemical which is known as an inhibitor chemical. The inhibitor 
prevents the dangerous chem chemicals from blowing up inside the beetle's own body. And it also, the inhibitor also enables the beetle to store those chemicals, those dangerous chemicals, indefinitely until he needs them. So when the beetle is threatened by a predator, he squirts the stored chemicals into the two combustion tubes of his body, and at the precise moment, another chemical, which is an anti-inhibitor, is added. And this anti-inhibitor, you see, kicks out the inhibitor chem chemical. And the result is a violent explosion aimed right in the face of the attacker. Well, according to the evolutionists, it would have taken thousands of generations to develop this defensive attack. This would mean that for thousands of generations, bombardier beetles would have incompletely and improperly mixed the hazardous chemicals. And the result would have been that they would have blown themselves to pieces. Eventually, however, this kamikaze system would have supposedly developed to the point where one, supposedly here, one little bombardier beetle finally arrived at the magic formula of explosive chemicals and the inhibitor chemical. Yet, it goes against evolutionary processes, you see, for the inhibitor chemical to have been developed until it was needed. And it wouldn't have been needed until the two explosive chemicals had been evolved. But for the inhibitor to then come along, once the two explosive chemicals had been evolved, for the inhibitor to come along would have been too late because all the bombardier beetles would have died from internal combustion without the inhibitor chemical. Even so, though, let's say that the little creature did somehow or another manage to simultaneously develop the two chemicals, the two dangerous chemicals, along with the inhibitor chemical. Well, the resulting mixture would do, do no good in protecting the beetle from its predators without the anti-inhibitor chemical. So then it would have taken supposedly thousands of further generations for the beetle to work on creating the anti-inhibitor. And in the meantime, the beetle wouldn't have had a defense mechanism, and so he would have been eaten by his predators. But finally, when the anti-inhibitor itself got all straightened out, if there were any bombardier beetles left by this time, uh, the busy little beetle would still have to evolve the two combustion tubes and a precise communication system and timing network in order to control and adjust the critical timing and the direction of the explosion. So again, for thousands more generations, bombardier beetles would have celebrated the 4th of July every day of the year as they blew themselves to pieces. But doesn't all of this trial and effort, um, I mean trial and error, disastrous effort, doesn't all of this de defeat the whole idea of evolution? Isn't evolution supposed to be beneficial? Isn't it supposed to evolve everything upward, upward, better and better? So how can millions of years of beetles blowing themselves up be beneficial? And how could the species have even survived at all while it was developing this defense mechanism? Of course, too, now evolutionists flatly deny that the entire defensive system of the beetle could have evolved all at once 
They say that would be impossible for everything just to have been established the way it is. And yet nature itself is absolutely full of similar examples of perfect coordination. So it's obvious, at least to the one who has eyes to see or a heart to hear, it's obvious that such a perfect arrangement could never have arisen apart from intelligence and planning by a designer, by a divine creator. Therefore, like all of the creation, the little bombardier beetle is a strong witness for special creation. Just as we should give testimony and witness to our creator, all God's creation gives witness and testimony in different ways to their creator. And the little bombardier beetle does this by his incredibly amazing defense system. There is simply no other explanation for such a wonder. And by the way, the water beetle is also equipped with an impressive defense mechanism. He escapes his enemies by secreting a detergent substance. And this ejection from his body not only serves to propel the beetle forward quickly, you know, catapults him far out of reach from his enemy, but also the dangerous detergent which comes out of his body causes the surface tension of the water to break down. And this causes the pursuing insect to sink into the water so that the water beetle is safe. Well, just as we mentioned in our last lesson, the fact that the amazing phenomena of migratory skills among birds and fish and animals is a strong testimony to an intelligent creator, another evolutionary baffling phenomenon of nature is that of mimicry. Mimicry is when one type of organism imitates or it mimics another type. And most examples of mimicry occur with insects, although other animals and even some plants will exhibit this capability as well. Some spiders, for example, are very successful at disguising themselves as ants. Did you know that? <laughs> so that once they're among the ant, they're in the ant colony, they can then simply enjoy a feast. Now this may not impress you very much until you remember that spiders have eight legs and no antenna, whereas ants have only six legs and two antenna. So to trick the ants, the spider will actually fold up his two front legs and put them over his forehead, <laughs> and then he will proceed to wiggle those legs around so that they look like antenna. And then to authenticate his mimicry even further, the spider will actually walk with the jerky movement of ants while they're feeding. So he'll imitate an ant's walk. Some spiders will even carry an ant's skeleton over their own body to further disguise themselves. So they, they put on a costume. They cover themselves with an ant's skeleton. Now that's amazing. That's incredible. How do spiders know how to do that? Well, divine intelligence coded all that information into the DNA molecules of the spiders. Other mimics trick their predators by disguising themselves as bad-tasting or stinging kinds of species, which their enemies will, of course, therefore avoid. Many types of butterflies, for example, will imitate the monarch butterfly, 
or some other type of butterfly or moth which doesn't taste very good and so they will not be pursued some kinds of flies will imitate bees and hornets so that they won't be um, pursued and then in other cases it's the predator which does the mimicry a species of a, of a certain desert lizard entices insects by opening up a corner of its mouth and when it's opened the mouth somehow or another looks just like a small desert flower so the insect flies right in to his death as he goes into the lizard's mouth thinking it's a flower certain female fireflies mimic the flashes of the light flashes you know of females of of other species and then when the excited male suitor is lured he's eaten and that's the end of that little courtship well countless other examples of mimicry could be cited which all disallow for any sort of evolutionary explanation moving to a slightly larger creature at least compared to the insects uh, let's discuss the mole now did you know that moles can even hear earthworms chewing beneath the ground and that they have more ability to sense things going on around them than a sophisticated space probe and by the way contrary to popular opinion moles are not blind many people think that moles are blind but they are not they do have very tiny eyes I don't think they see very well but they do have eyes moles don't run well because they were designed for digging and so their front feet have claws which are so specialized I think they sort of curl up under them uh, that when they walk most of the time they spend digging but if they when they're walking they actually have to walk on their knuckles but the nose and the tail of the mole have vibration sensors which are more sensitive than anything science has been able to produce these sensors consist of literally thousands of parts which allow the mole to hear and to locate grub worms which are chewing on the roots of your lawn grass and they can hear these grub worms through several feet of soil did you know that the moles are actually I know they they leave um, a mound in your yard where they have been but they're actually good for your lawn because they do eat the grub worms which are chewing the roots of your grass so if you have moles maybe you'll look at them in a different perspective they're not so bad after all then did you know that just as radio stations are assigned different frequencies on which to operate so does the animal world communicate in territories and frequencies frogs for example have mating calls but many different types of frogs are often found in some of the same swampy areas so then how are their mating calls differentiated you know if you turned on your radio sta uh, station and there weren't different frequencies for the different radio programs you would have nothing but a cacophony of noise you'd have to turn it off it would be so horrendous so how do the how do the frogs differentiate their mating calls when they're in the same area well they avoid interfering with one another by using different frequencies just like your radio programs and your t television waves if they didn't do this then no one frog's mating call could be heard clearly 
Well, there's a slight problem because down in South America, there are two different types of frogs which are found in the same location, but they both use the same frequency. So how can they do this and not cause confusion? Well, it's because one frog type makes his calls above the water, while the other type of frog in that same swampy area calls from underneath the water. Since the water's surface makes an effective barrier for sound, neither one of the mating calls interferes with the other. Now, how did this happen? Frogs do not understand the physics of the situation to have figured all of this out about the sound, you know, the effective sound barrier of water. And neither could all of the frogs of the entire world have gotten together, you know, at some world council meeting in Switzerland somewhere to determine which types of their species would use which particular frequency in any given area. That's nonsense. Of course they didn't do that. Instead, this whole situation speaks of the wisdom and the planning of a creator. Now, there are a number of animals in the northern hemisphere of our planet which spend their winters in hibernation. This is another uh, something which baffles the evolutionist because he has to explain it over millions of years developing. The ground squirrel, for example, has an internal clock which causes hormonal changes within its body. These changes not only lower the temperature and the metabolic breathing and the heart rate of the squirrel, but they change the way its nervous system and cell membranes operate as well. If the nervous system and the cell membrane operation were not modified for hibernation, the other changes would definitely kill the animal because its body temperature drops about 35 degrees, its heart rate drops from 350 beats per minute to about 3 beats per minute, and it will only breathe about once every several minutes while it's hibernating. Now you try that sometime. You couldn't. You couldn't do it. You would be dead. But these vast and complex changes which affect the function of every single cell in the squirrel's body show us that hibernation was something built in to the animal, to the species, and not something which evolved by way of genetic accidents over millions of years of development. The animals, you see, would have all died waiting for their bodies to find the right combination of internal changes to allow for their long winter sleep. So it's impossible that something like this could have evolved. There would have been no animals left. Well, let's go to Australia. Australia is a land with many animals not found anywhere else on this earth. And one such unique critter is the wombat, which looks like a small bear with brown fur. The wombat is a burrowing animal, just like the mole. And like many of Australia's animals, the wombat is a marsupial, meaning it has a pouch, you know, like a kangaroo or a wallaby. It has a pouch in which it carries its prematurely born young while their development is then completed. The pouches of most marsupials open at the top. You know, you've seen pictures of kangaroos with the little baby kangaroos coming out of the top. The, the pouch top is toward the mother's head. However, the pouch opening of the wombat is not at the top. 
Since the wombat is a burrowing animal, the pouch would very soon fill with dirt, suffocating the young in the pouch, you know, as the mother was digging through the ground. The dirt would come through the top and it would suffocate her babies. So unlike the other marsupials, the wombat's pouch opens toward the bottom. And therefore, no dirt fills the pouch as the mother moves around underground. The wombat's pouch is a clear case of an intelligent, specialized design for a unique situation. If the pouch had been produced by mutations, then how would the baby wombats have survived during the millions of years of trial and error which would have been needed for the redesigning of the pouch. I mean, can you imagine a pouch at the, with the opening at the top and then mutations slowly turning it, turning it, turning it, with each generation turning it until it was finally upside down? I mean, that is ridiculous. Instead, the wombat was made on day six, complete and fully functioning for his particular job of burrowing under the ground and having his babies not get... Uh, filled with dirt as the mother went about her business. The pouch opening was at the bottom. Another fascinating animal from Australia is the duckbill platypus, which continues to amaze scientists. This animal is quite unique. The platypus has a bill and webbed feet like a duck. It has a tail very similar to a beaver. It lays eggs like um, reptiles and chickens, but it feeds its milk, its young with milk, just like mammals. It is, in fact, been, has been categorized as a mammal, but it's very strange. It also has spurs on its back legs, just like snakes' fangs, and those spurs are poisonous. And it uses echolocation, just like dolphins, so it's a real mixture. The nerves in the skin of the platypus, which enable it to sense touch, also enable it to sense electricity. When a shrimp, which is what the platypus eats, when a little shrimp flicks its tail, it generates about 200 to 1,000 millionths, that's a very tiny amount, of a volt of electricity. Now that's not very much at all. That's nothing we would ever feel. And yet, it is enough to enable the duckbill platypus to sense and locate his meal, the little shrimp. The platypus absolutely baffles the evolutionist because although it is classified, as I said, as a mammal, it is as genetically different from all other mammals as birds are. It's as different from a mammal as a bird is different from a mammal. But it is not like the birds either. It is genetically not like the birds. So this leaves the platypus, platypus with absolutely no evolutionary history whatsoever. It's almost as if it just popped into existence complete and whole just to mystify the evolutionist. And that it has done. And by the way, if you ever hear of an evolutionist using a platypus as a missing link, saying, well, look, here's a transitional species. That's not true because platypus fossils, which have been found, um, 
are exact they show us that the animal is exactly the same that it is today it has not evolved it was the same way supposedly millions of years ago as it is today of course we know that wasn't millions of years ago it was at the most about 6000 or 4000 whenever those um fossils were made at the time of the flood but the the platypus has not changed a bit it has not evolved it's the same yesterday as it is today then going up in size we might think of the giraffe the tallest animal um on our planet the giraffe the heart and the cardiovascular system of the giraffe is very different from ours as it is from most other animals if it wasn't different the giraffe would not be able to live in order to get his blood all the way from his heart up to his brain by way of that long neck the giraffe's heart has to produce twice as much blood pressure as would normally be expected in an animal its weight the giraffe's brain is extremely sensitive to high blood pressure so in order to compensate this difficult situation there is a special network of blood vessels which has been referred to as the wonder net the wonder net helps to keep the blood pressure in the giraffe's brain just exactly where it needs to be so even if the giraffe quickly drops his head to take a drink of water after he's been eating something high on a treetop the blood pressure in his head will remain safe because the wonder net takes care of such rapid changes furthermore there's a special set of one-way check valves in the giraffe's jugular vein which prevent used blood from draining back into his brain when he does lower his head and then in addition to that we might ask how the giraffe who stays on his feet all day can keep blood from pooling in his legs and scientists have found that the skin of the giraffe's legs is extremely tight fitting when a giraffe walks its muscle movement within that tight skin actually helps to pump the used blood out of his legs so he's an incredibly fascinating creature fearfully and wonderfully made god's creation is truly truly worthy to be shared with all people so that they along with us can worship him as their creator men need to study the animals and in studying them they need to see their creator only a all wise all loving all powerful all intelligent creator could could um could engineer these kind of creatures to work and operate in every kind of environment. And by the way, when we talked about Darwin's theory of natural selection in a, our lesson last time, we mentioned how he used the long neck of the giraffe as an example of natural selection. In the struggle for survival, Darwin suggested that it was eventually the giraffes with the longer necks who survived and reproduced giraffes with longer necks themselves. However, there's a slight problem here in that the female giraffe is about 2 feet shorter than the male. And so <laughs> all females, you see, would have perished long before the males. Survival of the fittest, well, they wouldn't have made it, the females, because they're 2 feet shorter, 24 inches shorter. And the result, if all the females perished, what would the result have been? It would have been the end of the entire species. There'd be no giraffes 
around today. <clears throat> so that just absolutely disproves natural selection. It's also been disproved in other ways as well. I just wanted to add that comment. Well, because the elephant, which is a large, warm-blooded land creature, has such a mass of heat-generating cells, it could potentially have the problem of generating dangerous amounts of heat in warm climates, which is where elephants generally live. So the elephant needs a slow metabolism so that he doesn't generate too much heat in the first place. However, if he has too slow a metabolism, he would not be able to live. So to compensate for this dilemma, the elephant has a built-in cooling system. And what do you think it consists of? His ears. Each ear on an average elephant weighs slightly over 100 pounds. And together, they function very effectively as cooling devices. By changing how close his ears are held to his body, or how they are flapped, the elephant can control how much blood in his ears is cooled before it's then returned to the rest of his body. And this system keeps the circulated blood of the elephant's entire body out of the dangerous range of heat. Incredible, isn't it? Well, by the time the Lord God finished the first half of his creation work of day six, he had solved millions of engineering problems just like those these few examples that we have given to you here in this lesson. This is just a few. There are so many more. We could spend weeks discussing all the various creatures. Just think, for example, of the marvel of the camel who can go uh, without water for two weeks or longer. Is He has an amazing body chemistry which enables him to keep on recirculating the moisture in his body. Or think of the caterpillar which metamorphosizes into a beautiful butterfly. Or of the amazing miracle of interdependence which is seen throughout nature such as in cross-pollinization. In some cases, you know, the proportions of the tubes of flowers correspond precisely to the length and the curvature of the particular kind of bird or insect which feasts on the nectar of a particular flower. I mean, have you ever seen that? How the cur- the beak will, or the whatever it would be just absolutely fits perfectly down into the tube of a flower shaped the same way? Then, added to the many incredible examples of God's creation of land animals, were also the land dinosaurs. Nothing but the great blue whales today exceeds the size of some of these land dinosaurs. I mean, they were absolutely tremendous. Although, of course, not all dinosaurs were tremendous. Some were as small as rabbits or even chickens. From the fossils of bone structures... We do know a lot about the sizes of the dinosaurs, but we know very little, really, about their skin color. It's very possible that some of them had colorful patterns on their skins, such as stripes, you know, like zebras have beautiful stripes, or patches, or spots, like uh, leopards and um, tigers. They could have been absolutely beautiful. Their skin colors, we don't know. We don't know much about their colors or their their skin patterns. But we do know they came in a wide variety of shapes as well as sizes. Some were shaped like ostriches, short. Some were short and heavy. Some were tall and skinny. Some were built like armored tanks. 
Some could swim, some could fly, some ate only vegetation, some ate meat, although, of course, originally all were created to only eat vegetation. It wasn't until the fall that dinosaurs began to eat meat. Um, some dinosaurs had long necks and tails. Some could hard. Some could. Uh, some could. This is interesting. Act, some could actually breathe fire, which is probably why there is talk of fire-breathing dragons in so many of the records of ancient people. Now, this is not as foolish as fairy tales make it appear. There very well were, and I believe there were, because the Bible says so fire-breathing dragons, which were actually fire-breathing dinosaurs. You know, if bombardier beetles can have a defense system which shoots out balls of hot, noxious gas like Tommy guns and tear gas all in one, then why couldn't God create fire-breathing dinosaurs? But then, if you don't believe me, perhaps you will believe the Bible. Let's turn, if you would, to the book of Job. Job chapter 41. And let's read together. Let me find it here. Let's read verses 19 to 21. Here Job is talking about Leviathan. And Leviathan is a water dinosaur, a marine dinosaur. He is not, as some have suggested, a crocodile. If you read all about Leviathan in this chapter, you will realize very quickly that there is no way this creature could have just been a crocodile. Now let's read those verses together. Job 41, starting at verse 19. It says, Out of his mouth goeth burning lamps, and sparks of fire leap out. Out of his nostrils goeth smoke, as out of a seething pot or cauldron. His breath kindleth coals, and a flame goeth out of his mouth. Does that sound like a fire-breathing dragon? Sure does. And this is just another reason for this creature not being merely a crocodile. Never have we seen a fire-breathing crocodile. So, dinosaurs, some kinds of dinosaurs, at least this leviathan type, could actually breathe fire. All dinosaurs, regardless of their shape, their color, or their size, had the skeletal structure of creeping things. They come under the category of creeping things. They all belonged to the animal family known today as reptiles. Reptiles are cold-blooded animals, which depend partly on the temperature of the environment for their body heat. So after the water vapor canopy was removed from the, around the earth at the time of the flood, the worldwide flood. That's when the water vapor canopy broke. God divinely broke it, and it rained on the earth for the first time. And then the post-flood climate on the earth became much cooler in many parts of the earth. Well, the offspring of the young dinosaurs, which were taken on the ark, they would have had difficulty surviving because their body temperature could not stay warm enough anymore. Now, by the way, some of you have asked about were dinosaurs taken on the ark? Yes, pairs of dino all living dinosaurs were taken on the ark. For one thing, you have to understand that reptiles keep growing with age. And so Noah would have taken, God would have seen to this, Noah would have taken the small young dinosaurs, which would not have been that tremendous 
with him on the ark. He wouldn't have taken the old ones, who perhaps had stopped reproducing and were so huge. He would have taken young dinosaurs with him on the ark. But after the water vapor canopy broke and they came back out on land after the flood subsided, they would not. their offspring would not have been able to um, live very successfully because they depended on a warm environment to live since they're reptiles. Well, this fact, plus the fact that vegetation was not as lush and as prosperous without the global greenhouse effect produced by the pre-flood water vapor canopy, all of this resulted in the eventual extinction of most of the dinosaurs. However, you know, there still are, as we mentioned last time, there still are a number of dinosaurs living today. There is, for example, the Komodo dragon lizards of Komodo Island in Indonesia. There's the Mona iguana of Mona Island in the Caribbean. There are the Galapagos tortoises of Isabel Island, which are part of the Galapagos Islands of the Pacific Ocean, and then the crocodiles. Some species of crocodiles grow over 30 feet in length. Well, let's move on now to part two of our outline, God's Separated Kinds of Land Animals. It's interesting to note that in verses 24 and 25 of Genesis chapter 1, regarding God's creation of the land animals, we do find the phrase, as I mentioned when I was reading the scripture, we find the phrase, after his kind or after their kind, a total of five times. is repeated five times in just two verses. We know that God doesn't waste words, and therefore we can also know that he was purposely stressing something very important. You see, he knew evolution would come along, and nothing, I, I could say this very safely, I believe, nothing in the long history of mankind has driven people from the Bible and therefore from truth and from salvation in Jesus Christ as has the false teaching of evolution. Dr. Henry Morris writes this. Dr. Henry Morris is the one who has uh, begun the Institute for Creation Research, and he has written many books on creationism and against evolutionism. This book is The Troubled Waters of Evolution, where I get this quote. He says, quote, If man is a product of evolution... He is not a fallen creature in need of a savior, but a rising creature. In other words, he's saying if man just came from a monkey, he doesn't need a savior. He's a rising creature capable of saving himself. The gospel of evolution is the enemy of the gospel of Christ, he says. The gospel of Christ leads to salvation, to righteousness, joy, peace, and meaning in life. Evolution's gospel yields materialism, collectivism, anarchism, atheism, and despair in death. End of quote. And how true that is. And we wonder why we live in a world where so many are in deep despair. Well, to the embarrassment of evolutionists, the fossil record of the geologic column supports the biblical principle of reproduction after his kind instead of the requirement of their theory, which is that life is in a continual state of flux, continual state of change. As we've mentioned before, 
the stability of kinds of animals is also confirmed by modern science and experimentation. Breeders and geneticists have verified the the fantastic stability of kinds of species. Horizontal variations, which is referred to as microevolution, Horizontal variations, which, is, which are operated within the limits allowed by the DNA for a particular living organism, these are possible, and they have been used to develop many breeds within species. In other words, there are many different breeds of dogs, for example. That's horizontal variation referred to as microevolution. Now, we know that that's true within the limits allowed by the DNA. But vertical up and down transformations, which are which is called macroevolution, transformations of one kind of organism into an entirely new kind of organism is prohibited. It simply does not occur. Fish never change into reptiles. Cats never change into dogs. Dogs never change into horses. Horses never change into apes. Apes never change into men. There are boundaries between kinds, and they are real boundaries, and they are stubborn biological facts. Even when abnormal interbreeding between two similar species occurs, the result is sterility. For example, if they breed a zebra and a horse, they get a sterile zebronchi or whatever they call it. If they try to breed a lion and a tiger, they get a sterile liger. Or a horse and a donkey, what do you get? You get a sterile mule. And they, therefore, cannot uh, interbreed. The mules cannot interbreed and start a new species called mule. It's impossible. Although there are many serious defects in the evolutionary theory, and we've talked about many of them over the weeks, Yet one of the most serious defect is the complete absence of any transitional forms between species, either in the fossil record or in the world around us. I mean, look around. How many transitional forms do you see? You see half fish, half reptiles walking around? Of course not. From the very beginning... The organisms found in the fossil record appear just as clearly and distinctly set apart from one another as they are today. And Charles Darwin himself was honest enough to acknowledge the reality of the absence of transitional forms between species in the fossil record. And yet he excused this to an incomplete fossil record. You see, he hoped that the connecting links would be found and that all the, the critical gaps would be filled as more of the geologic column was uncovered. Back in his day, that not that much of it had been dug up. However, it has now been well over a 100 years since Darwin and there is no longer an excuse for the lack of a single missing link. I mean, not even one. They don't even have one missing link. Professor N., her, Herbert Nilsson of Lund University in Sweden has studied evolution for over 40 years, and he has stated the following on the problem of missing links. Quote, 
The fossil material is now so complete that the lack of transitional series cannot be explained by the scarcity of the material. The deficiencies are real. They will never be filled. End of quote. Dr. David Kitts, who is a leading evolutionist, admitted that evolution faces, quote, nasty difficulties, the most notorious of which is the presence of gaps in the fossil record. End of quote. Dr. Dwayne Gish, <coughs> who is also with the Institute for Creation Research, <coughs> excuse me, has stated this. Incredible, over 100 million years of evolution and no fossilized transitional forms. End of quote. He's being sarcastic there. They've had over 100 million years to dig up one transitional fossil and they have not been able to do it. Sir Arthur Keith says, quote, evolution is unproved and unprovable. Dr. Clark H. Pinnock says, quote, evolution is the cultural myth of the 20th century, end of quote. And this is an interesting one from Napoleon Bonaparte. Bonaparte said, quote, it is strange what men can believe as long as it is not in the Bible, end of quote. <coughs> Yet despite the overwhelming and insurmountable problems for evolution, it's amazing, but the faith of its followers persists. It's like, don't bother us with the facts. Our minds are made up. We could really take the biblical definition for faith, which is found in Hebrews 11.1, and restate it for the evolutionist, as this. Well, you know what it says in Hebrews 11.1. 1. It says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Well, we could restate it for the evolutionist as, Now faith is the substance of fossils hoped for, the evidence of links not seen. <laughs> we could say, as Paul wrote in Romans 1.22, Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. They will go so far out of their way to avoid believing in a divine creator. It's absolutely incredible. Well, ironically, if you think about this, the science of taxonomy, that's the science of uh, classifying animals into their different species, this science actually supports biblical creationism. If we think about the fact that the basic proposition of evolutionism is that life is in a continual state of change through natural selection and small mutational changes, then if this was true, how could animal classification even be possible? So there'd be all kinds of transitional forms. It wouldn't be possible to categorize them into any one type of um, category, classification. Yet, because living organisms are distinctly different, they can be easily classified into separate categories. And this is in complete agreement with creation's teaching after his kind. By the way, the basic progression of life leading up to man, which is proposed by the general theory of evolution, is this. <clears throat> Here's what they propose. First of all, there was non-living matter, then protozoans, then arthropods, then mollusks, then fifth vertebrate 
fishes, then amphibians, reptiles, mammals, birds, apes, and last, man. <clears throat> now, there is absolutely not one authentic transitional fossil or present transitional living creature between any one of these 11 basic groups. And this missing links problem is even more accentuated when it is understood that between the above classifications that I just mentioned, the evolutionists propose millions of years of developmental transitional time. In other words, between non-living matter and protozoans, millions of years. Between protozoans and arthropods, millions of years. Between protozoans and, uh, I mean, between arthropods and mollusks, millions of years. So here they have man, uh, millions of years of transitional time, which should have involved literally billions of transitional forms. Well, we ask the question then, where are they? Where are all these transitional forms? They're not there. They're not there because the theory of evolution is absolutely not true. It's interesting, to me at least, that two paleontologists, um, Gould and Eldridge, have come up with another concept because of this embarrassment over having no transitional fossils, they've come up with another idea to help explain why the fossil record is so void of any transitional forms whatsoever. So they have proposed that evolution occurs by sudden large leaps rather than, than through gradual and small modifications. And this idea is what they have called punctuated equilibrium. I guess that sounded like a real good um, scientific title punctuated equilibrium. Well, picking up on this idea as perhaps the hopeful monster mechanism to save evolution, one scientist has proposed that at one point in time past, a reptile laid an egg and a bird hatched from it. <laughs> the simple truth of the matter, however, is that the only ones who have laid any eggs are the scientists who have concocted such foolishness so completely devoid of any scientific evidence or logic. I mean, it is incredible what they will come up with rather than the obvious fact that God created everything. In the fact that the fossil record reveals a sudden appearance of greatly diversified and complex forms with no evolutionary ancestors, this means that the fossil record demonstrates the fixity of kinds. So the rocks of this world do indeed proclaim their creator. The fossil rocks of this world proclaim their creator, just as everything else does. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Revelation 4.11. Well, let's look now. That was only part one of our outline. Let's consider part two. God saw <clears throat> land animals were good. God looked over the wide variety of animals that he had made, and he saw that his work was good. The animals fit 
for life on the land. Well, no, this is part three. Excuse me, part three. The animals fit for life on the land of Earth fulfilled their function. They were valuable for the specific purposes for which they had been created. There was no struggle for existence. You know, no struggle for survival among the animal world at this time before the fall of man, or else God could not have said that it was good, could he? So there was no sin, no death, no struggle here. As with the living water creatures and the fowl of day five, the land animals were created for four basic reasons. First of all, to populate and give life to the earth. You know, the earth as we have said, was not created to be void. It was not created to be uninhabited. So purpose number one, to populate and give life to the earth. Actually, in this case, to the land of the earth. Secondly, they were, um, they were good because they helped to carry on the reproduction of the food chain. And also to give variety and beauty to the earth and to show forth, therefore, God's glory and power, just as the stars and the sun and the moon do, and the fish and the fowl, the land creatures glorify God and showeth forth his handiwork. And then, fourthly, the animals provide companionship for man. I don't think we can hardly even attempt to imagine what this world would be like without any animal life whatsoever. For one thing, we would do very poorly on even surviving. But if we could somehow or another manage to take on all the jobs, like uh, what the animals do to keep the vegetation alive, you know, to pollinate the flowers, etc., and to keep the waters clean and the atmosphere oxygen-rich, even if we could manage all of that, we would still be rather lonely without our little and our big animal friends, would we not? Now, I want to add uh, a footnote here. You know, in addition to Archaeopteryx, which is uh, a bird which evolutionists had once widely promoted as a missing link between reptilian dinosaurs and birds, and we did refute this in the previous lesson, the other main group of fossils which is highly promoted by evolutionists is a series of fossil horses of varying sizes. You have probably seen this somewhere in a museum or in a, a book. These horse fossils vary also in their toes and in their ribs, and some evolutionists have claimed that this absolutely proves that modern one-toed horses evolved from a very small mammal which had multiple toes. Well, in refuting this theory, we quote from biologist and paleontologist Dr. Gary Parker, who once taught this. He had been an evolutionist. He is now a creationist. Dr. Parker says, quote, More detailed information has now forced us to abandon the idea that horses have truly evolved. We find that the size differences between the fossil horses is not crucial. It is now possible to breed extremely small horses. What about the so-called dawn horse? We now know that it was not a horse at all. Instead, it was a rock badger or a coney, what scientists would call a hyrax. It was the ancestor not of the horses but of the conies that still live on earth today. 
What about the in-between forms that show how the toe number was gradually reduced? Some living Shire horses have been known to have more than one toe per foot. Also, all the supposed in-between forms are found buried in the same geological formations, which indicates they lived at the same time and could not have been the ancestors of one another. Instead, it's more like a scene we might see around an African water hole where animals of many sizes and shapes, animals with a few toes or with many toes, all live together at the same time. End of quote. That is found in the book The Fossil Record. Paleontologist and evolutionist, now this man is an evolutionist, Dr. Niles Eldridge of the American Museum of Natural History, says this, quote, I admit that an awful lot of that fantasy has gotten into the textbooks as though it was true. For instance, the most famous example is the exhibit on horse evolution prepared perhaps 50 years ago. That has been presented as literal truth in textbook after textbook. Now I think that that is lamentable, particularly because the people who propose these kinds of stories themselves may be aware of the speculative nature of some of the stuff. But by the time it filters down to the textbooks, we've got science as truth and we've got a problem. And that quote is taken from Darwin's Enigma, Fossils and Other Problems by Luther Sunderland. Well, that was the end. This is the end of God's creative work on the first part of day six. When we come back in our next lesson, Lord willing, we will look at God's creation of man, the apex of his creative work. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this study. We thank you for all that you have shown to us about how you brought everything into existence. We thank you for the beauty and the splendor of your creation. We thank you how so many of your creatures, every one of them in fact, give testimony to yourself. Not only the trinities of the world around us give evidence of you as the triune God creator, but the splendor and the wisdom and the planning, the engineering of every single creature also testifies of your wonder and your omnipotence and your omniscience. And Lord, we love you and we thank you and we, we just want to praise you for having created this beautiful place to put us in. Thank you for making man the apex of your creation and preparing all of this just for us, just so that you could enjoy our fellowship. Thank you most of all for sending the Lord Jesus Christ who died for us when we rebelled against you through Adam, our first father, and then not only are we sinners in Adam, but we're also sinners by choice. Every one of us, had we been in Adam's shoes, would have done the same thing. So we thank you that in your foreknowledge and in your wise planning, you had from the very foundation of the world determined that you would redeem us through your own son and his shed blood and death on our behalf. And Father, how we do praise you and thank you for that. And if there should be one here among us who has never surrendered herself to you as creator and redeemer, Father God, I pray that today she would do so or he would do so or whoever would be hearing this tape and message that she or he would get down on her knees and say, Father God, forgive me, I am a sinner. 
in need of a Savior, Lord Jesus Christ, I know you died on my behalf. I accept your payment for sin for me, and I thank you for it, and I ask you to now come into my heart, wash me clean and white as snow, help me to live from this day forward for your glory. Thank you for creating me. Thank you for saving me. And, Lord, I dedicate the rest of my life to living for you. And, Father, we thank you and we give you glory for all your good works, including, most of all, your salvation work. We love you and we pray these things in Christ's name for his glory. Amen.